Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is. I'm Peter Whittle. Now, my guest today is somebody who writes about politics but also has been at the very centre of politics. Nick Timothy is a columnist for the Daily Telegraph. He's also the author of the book Remaking One Nation, The Future of Concertism, which came out this year. It's going to be actually coming out in paperback in September. Um, but before that, uh, he was right at the heart of politics as special advisor to Theresa May when she was at the Home Office. And then after that, Joint Chief of Staff at Downing Street uh, when Theresa May was Prime Minister. So he's been both sides of the divide, if you like. Um, thank you very much for joining us, Nick. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a, a pleasure. Um, I want to ask uh, before anything, it, it, it behoves me to do this. How will you be, uh, well, are you going to be watching tonight at the, the football? I will. I've been watching uh, all the England games and actually uh, quite a few of the other ones. Yeah. Uh, uh, this is an Anglo-Swiss household, so we've been cheering on Switzerland uh, <laughs> as well as England. But my wife is actually uh, half Italian, so it's okay. a, bit, oh. bit, a bit difficult. Uh, but um, uh, but we'll be we've we've got a we've got a nice big screen in the living room and we'll be oh I see watching in there with the kids. So it's going to be a home thing. It's going to be a domestic thing. It's not going to be at some pub or something. Yeah, th- it's going to. Be, it's I think be, I'm yeah. going to be in a pub on the seafront at Plymouth. Uh, apparently that's the plan. So we'll see. But uh, um, interesting. You wrote a piece. I want to talk to you about this this week in the Telegraph, which I thought you know obviously was extremely timely and. But it was about England. It was about England and Englishness and English identity, and also about the need or not for an English Parliament. Um, can I start by sort of asking you, as you say in the article, the there is this uh, view that English identity is, as you put it, thin; that it doesn't amount to much. Uh, who has that view? Well. I think this is one of the emerging myths of the debate about the role of England at the moment. Um, So English identity and culture, I think, has been just ignored uh, for quite a long time. Uh, I think the English identity has been subsumed into a British identity for um, a matter of centuries. And the English, I think, by and large, were actually quite happy to do that. And, And I think a combination of factors... Um, which uh, I think might be partly down to things like asymmetric devolution and the creation of national institutions to Scotland and Wales. Um, But also, I think the increasing importance of identity and culture. Um, But also, I think the sense that the British project, the things that brought uh, the nations of the UK together, firstly, the imperial project, second, uh, fighting fascism in Europe um, uh, have have weakened, um, and and the 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 extent to which the English feel English and not British is, uh, or English as well as British uh, is changing, um, and in response to that, I think a lot of people in the kind of liberal centre and the left have uh, have ignored it. It's inconvenient. They uh, they find. Patriotism at the best of times pretty distasteful. Uh, remember Emily Thornberry and the flag. Um, but those I think who are starting to engage with it 
are sort of propagating this uh, this myth that English identity and English culture isn't really a thing that is very thin, it barely exists. Um, and, and in fact, it's a kind of negative reaction to others' identities, uh, which I think is completely wrong. Mm. Uh, it is sort of uh, a, a quite extraordinary when you consider how rich, actually, uh, English identity is. It, it seems to me that when people do say, or well, you say it's this myth of, the, of being uh, thin, it's almost like the people who claim that want it to be so. Would you agree with mm. that? Yes, I think so. I mean, I think it's probably connected to some of the assumptions of uh, the, the sort of uber, ultra, hyper, whatever you want to call them, liberals, um, who who tend to ignore or even hostile uh, to uh, to the specificities of place. Uh, they don't really sort of appreciate the institutional, cultural, legal um, contexts mm. in which things are done. I mean, I think there are actually quite uh, long-lasting um, philosophical reasons behind that. If you if you trace uh, some of the early liberal thought, uh, but you see it in the way that that people behave now, where you know countries are almost treated as platforms uh, upon which anybody in the world can do anything they like, and and the you know the traditions and the institutions uh, and so on of that particular place um, uh, count for very little in the eyes of these people. Yes. Uh, I also think there's probably a um, it's quite convenient for them to argue that our identity and culture is thin because uh, it, it's an excuse for them not having taken our identity and culture very seriously for quite a long time. It does seem, obviously, there's this, you know, very often quoted uh, line from Orwell, you know, about the English intelligence. The English intellectual is, I think he said, is unique in the world in being ashamed of their identity. And they'd rather steal from, as he put it, a poor box and stand for God save the king, as it then was. Um, I think that that, that that view would seem to have spread as the so-called intelligentsia has spread in the post-war years. W would you agree with that? I mean, I think there are plenty of people on the left who are patriotic. Mm. Um, oh, yeah. And there are some people who are patriotic and may think of patriotism in a slightly different way to those of us on the centre-right. Um, and I think it's important that we don't um, inadvertently um, uh, attack some of those people. It's, you know, I think there are, there are many ways that, in which you can love your country and you don't have mm. to subscribe to a, an ideological uh, or philosophical uh, perspective to do that. But I think it is true that uh, there is a um, there, there is a almost a self-hatred um, for some. Now, I think, again, I mean, I think some of that is partly down to um, ideology because there's a there's this sort of trend towards so-called anti-colonialism. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and there's a lot of self-flagellation about Britain's own uh, history of empire. Uh, you might argue that anti-colonialism is somewhat late. Uh, and not necessarily relevant to today's England and to, to today's Britain. Um, uh, but I think, um, but as I say, I mean, I think some of it comes down to the fact that um, 
there's this appreciation of all sorts of cultures from around the world, uh, which is right. We should enjoy all those cultures. Um, uh, but uniquely, <laughs> there is one culture which is not to be liked and not to be enjoyed, and that is our own. Uh, and I think Orwell was was right there. And as you say, uh, the 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 people guilty of the thing that he described uh, are perhaps larger in number now than they were then. Yes, I think there's a kind of <clears throat> what you might call a kind of lumpen intelligentsia now. You know, who who would broadly go along with that. But I, I would I would totally agree. I think a man like say. Tony Benn would have been real patriot, but I mean, in a very strong radical tradition. I mean, like a Cromwellian tradition almost, you know. Um, and I, I think that you know that that doesn't stop someone being patriotic. I suppose what I'm trying to get to the nub of, which I think is very important, is this: you mentioned this self hatred. I mean, we were talking about the football earlier. Around this time, I mean, you know, there have been a few conversations that I've had with people and you can tell that they're actually slightly disappointed that England are doing well they you know you've had these comments like I feel sorry for the Danes or the Danes were robbed and you sort of think what is your motivation for that you know yeah I mean I think that's certainly true um I mean I I don't know how many people are actually like that and sometimes I think um in this age of social media uh, um some uh fairly extreme minorities have their voices amplified more than um, perhaps they should um, and maybe give a misleading impression of mm. broader opinion. But there's definitely a certain kind of person um, who pretty angry saw about Brexit, who sort of, you yeah. know, would like the some <laughs> would like a European country to show us a thing or two, I imagine. Yes. Um, uh, but I think, to be honest, there's a bit of a danger, I think, in uh, in drawing or trying to draw um, very political conclusions from the performance of a football team. I mean, in the end, um, uh, you know, uh, if we win this evening or uh, or lose, um, that will be down to, quite obviously, uh, questions of football and tactics and strength of character and things like that. Uh, there are people who are trying to draw, you know, may maybe from a pro-Brexit perspective, um, uh, um, some conclusions about what an English victory might be. And there are people on the other side who are trying to make arguments about how this is a great vindication of, uh, of high levels of immigration uh, or whatever, which um, is pretty silly at the end of the day. Uh, football matters a lot to football fans like me, um, but the, <laughs> the political conclusions you can draw from them, are, I think, are fairly limited. Yes. Um, <clears throat> I just would go back to what, one thing you said earlier about the British the idea of the British sort of imperial project sort of having sort of coming slowly to its end. Um, I don't know whether this was the reason, but I remember that my parents, um, we always refer to ourselves as British, so far as I remember. But there was a sort of imperceptible time around about, I'd say, 20 years ago, where they suddenly started calling themselves English. And, you know, they were not, you know, the sort of political people who would have done that very consciously. Um, but I think it was almost like there was a feeling that something was being lost and it had to be held on to, you know. And I think that if you look at the football in 1966, you know, it was all Union Jacks, wasn't it? Yeah. And, and from the 90s onwards, as indeed it will be tonight, it will all be the George flag, won't it? I mean, there is a, a growing consciousness, would you say? Yeah, I think so. And actually, I mean, the... Uh, 
maybe maybe football played a part in this. Uh, but I mean, I think it was really striking if you look back at the pictures from 1966, as you say, everyone's waving a Union Jack and come Euro 96, 30 years later. And this was before uh, things like a Scottish Parliament. So it's, you know, it's kind of evidence that this isn't a reaction against kind of political Scottishness yeah. or whatever. Um, uh, the people were waving the cross of St. George. Mm. I think and the interesting thing for me, I think, is um, is the rise of the salience of English identity um, is not, I think, an anti-Union or an anti-British thing. Mm. Uh, they're they're complementary, and where I think um, this takes you, where you start to ask questions about well, how do you give effect to that identity? How do you mm. create the kind of democratic and institutional uh, um, uh, manifestation of, of that identity and culture? Um, uh, you know, it's got to be done in a way that is complementary for the Union uh, and for the UK. I think that's perfectly possible to achieve. You uh, said in your piece that you didn't think the way forward was English votes for English laws, but that it should be an English parliament. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think the problem with what we have at the moment is devolution is asymmetric, um, and we've never answered the question um, uh, that was first posed by Tam Dial, the Westlothian question mm. about why it should be right that an MP representing a Scottish constituency should vote on issues that affect England that have been devolved in Scotland. Um, but I think in many ways, the situation is actually a little worse than that. Because if you think that that's, that's a perfectly valid question, and a, and a question that hasn't been answered on an individual matter. But I'm very concerned about a future election in which we might have a UK government elected, which has no majority in England. And as we've been reminded during the COVID crisis, the UK government is actually in so many ways, education on uh, policing, on the health service, not the government for the whole of the UK. Sometimes it's the government for England and Wales, and sometimes it's the government just for England. And if you have a government of the UK that is also the government of England, elected without a majority of seats in England, you have a huge crisis of legitimacy for that government. Are they able to legislate for issues relating to England? Um, if you have English votes on English laws, uh, then you end up with parliamentary gridlock. And an election that arises from that kind of context pits England against uh, the other nations of the UK. And I think that's really dangerous, potentially ruinous for the union. So English votes and English laws doesn't address that problem. Uh, and I think as soon as as soon as you accept that there needs to be parliaments in Scotland and Wales, you have to accept that there needs to be a parliament in England as well, uh, because there needs to be balance in the constitution. Otherwise, you will have crises like these coming up from time to time. Uh, what form do you, what form would you say that this parliament should take? How should it be elected? Well, um, I'm uh, to be honest. M my view is that uh, 
people who advocate for an English parliament at this stage of the debate shouldn't be too prescriptive about about exactly how it should work. Um, I personally have uh, no time at all for the idea of regional parliaments in England. Uh, um, some say that England is too big uh, to fit into a federal model. Mm. Um, I think my answer to that is if that's true, it's too big for the union full stop. And that the solution to a large England inside the UK cannot be uh, to allow for circumstances in which England is governed uh, by governments that, that don't have democratic legitimacy there. Mm. Um, uh, so that I think there does need to be a parliament for England. Uh, that gives rise to all sorts of questions. Well, um, if England is so large um, inside the union, does that mean it needs to be accompanied with uh, guarantees of a certain amount of decentralised government, so the English First Minister isn't too powerful vis-a-vis -vis the UK Prime Minister. Mm. Um, uh, what does this mean in terms of your constitutional laws? Um, does it need like, a formally codified constitution? I don't think it necessarily does. Uh, obviously, there are questions about things like um, electoral systems mm. um, and uh, and issues like those. Uh, it also, I think, gives rise to the question about um, the future of the House of Lords. Uh, I would personally say it's an opportunity to uh, put that constitutional monstrosity out of its misery. Um, uh, and uh, and maybe the Lords uh, could become the, uh, the Parliament for uh, the UK. And then obviously there would be questions about um, how you would um, organise the composition of that Parliament. Would it be directly elected? Would it be uh, would it would it be filled with members from each of the national parliaments? Uh, there are all sorts of questions like this. There's no point in somebody like me at this stage of the debate saying I think it needs to be exactly like this. Uh, it's uh, it's obviously a yeah. long way away from uh, from. <clears throat> I think it, it seems pretty. It would seem to me to be pretty obvious that it would be done on some form of proportional representation, though. I mean, because that's generally the way these things are going, isn't it? I mean. You know, it's very hard to actually have a first-past-the-post uh, to just... Well, it's not hard to justify it, but it just seems to be the drift of things. That's the way things are done. It seems to me that... Um, I, I, I quite strongly disagree, I would say, what you said. Oh, really? Very unconservative. Right. Uh, uh, you're surrendering to uh, the, the logic of progressive thought. Uh, and the problem with progressive thought is who gets to define what progress is. Yes. And yes. Um, it, it's quite often people who don't reflect what the public wants at all. No. Uh, fair point taken. I, I, I think, though, isn't, wouldn't you say that if you have a federal system, I don't want to labour the point, you, you said, you know, th th this is just the idea. But if you have that kind of system, then the one thing really keeping it together will be the crown, won't it? Yeah. And I think, um, I mean, I, I think, we're, we're coming at this from the question of English identity, but um, I also think that a federal system is um, is a there's a strong argument for it from from the perspective of Scotland and Wales as well, and in particular Scotland, because unlike with devolution now, I would say to the Scottish people, look, firstly this is serious because we're doing it for England as well. Uh, so you, you know it's real. Uh, second, um, you have responsibility, instead of now where the government says, 
um, it, when it emerges when it emerges from its moments of complacency and enters into its panic mode uh, and says, "Oh God, we might lose Scotland. We'd better um, throw a bit more devolution mm. at them." Uh, instead of doing that, it basically says, "Apart from these things where we are unambiguously better together and uh, where we need to do things for the for the collective good." whether that's macroeconomic policy, defence, foreign policy, international trade, the maintenance of the UK single market, and so on. Other than these things, and we can decide what those things are, other than these things, you're responsible for everything. Mm -hmm. You can do everything. Tax raising powers, whatever you, whatever you like. Mm. Um, and, and then the arguments for Scottish independence, I think, are um, a lot weaker, because what is it that you want? that's different to this mm. um uh you would ask a nationalist and and then the things that are left uh, are the things that are um i think according to all the research among the most popular things about the union in scotland mm. uh, the currency the royal family uh the military and so on uh so i think i think from the perspective of uh, of the union um it would be uh it would be I think quite a powerful uh, solution, um, but yes, I mean, I think you know you're right that um, that the the number of things that are done clearly together and uh, you know as set out in statute would be far more limited now. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but the and that the crown would be a really important part of what keeps us all together. Alongside all of this, you would still need to have, uh, I think, a concerted effort to create institutions mm. and defend and renew uh, sort of traditions and habits mm. for things that we do together yes. as the four nations of the union yeah. um, before we sort of leave this uh, topic uh, when you were in your piece actually uh, you, you talked about and i think this is a terribly important point you know because I've just been on the London Assembly, for example. I've just finished on the London Assembly. And I mean, essentially, London has become... You are now a Londoner, right, if you sign up to kind of various values, which apparently the city has. I, I've never known a city having values, but apparently uh, this is it. It's no longer um, um, a shared story, for want of a better expression. It's no, it's no longer shared memories. But, you know, even, I would say, a generation ago, it probably still was. Um, but that is possibly the case, is it not, you know, even with, with a nation, you know, with, with England, uh, that it's sort of, we hear these very nebulous things of tolerance and such like. Um, well, you know, most people would call themselves tolerant, I think, even if they're not. Um, what do you, for you, what for you is Englishness? It's a really, I know that there are books written about this. I know. So it's a very, it's, it's not a fair question. But I mean, what would you say it is for you? I think it is a fair question. I think it's a really important question. I'm glad you asked it because um, I think politicians get themselves into a real mess mm. when they talk about these things. So you quite often hear, uh, <laughs> I remember, do you remember Gordon Brown wanted to create a national motto? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, because he was he was desperately trying to define 
It could have uh, been. Uh, it could have been that bigoted woman. That would be quite a good model. <laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed. Uh, and that's quite a good example of of what's wrong with values. I'll come on to that. Hmm. Um, um, but they quite often say, "Oh, the, you know, Britishness is the BBC hmm. or the NHS." Um, and actually, institutions do help to contribute towards identity, but obviously, it's, that's not the beginning and end of it. Uh, and sometimes they say it's values. Mm. And the problem with saying it's values is human values and interests are in constant conflict with one another. Um, uh, I might, might have a different value system to another Brit. Uh, I might have a pretty similar value system uh, to somebody from France. Mm. Um, uh, one I think is the right balance between conflicting values on, say, um, uh, security or justice Mm. uh, might change according to uh, whether we're at war or in the midst of a very serious terror threat. The the clash of values uh, uh, is inevitable uh, and and, and will continue forever, but will also continue changing Mm. forever. so you can't you can't say a country is a certain set of values uh, because um, uh, I might share the values of, of somebody from another country. I might disagree with the values of somebody in this country. You may you may say that there are some values that are not welcome here, mm. um, uh, and I think that's legitimate. Uh, but you can't define a country in terms of values. To me, um, a national identity is. It's a bit like a family. Um, and and actually, this comes to why it's important, because it's the shared identity we have um, is what allows us to recognize familiarity in a stranger. And that familiarity gives you a sense of trust and an expectation of reciprocity. And the solidarity that we need for nations to work, whether that's an extremist, the willingness to go to war alongside one another to protect one another's families and our land and our home, uh, or in peacetime, whether it's about being willing to abide by some laws or rules that you might not like because you know others are abiding by laws and rules that you think are right, or whether you might pay more in taxes to fund infrastructure in a part of the country you rarely visit mm. or or to pay for public services that others might use. And, and where do we get that familiarity from? It's in the shared stories and shared memories and shared moments and shared places and shared institutions. Uh, so you may meet somebody who's British or English, and you'll recognize the familiarity in one another very quickly, mm. even if you've never met, uh, because you might talk about, you know, the football tonight, mm. or what happened in Coronation Street on Wednesday, mm. uh, or find out that your grandparents came from the same part of the country, and you both love, you know, the Yorkshire Dales or something. It's grounded in place and institutions and language and memories, and sometimes those memories might be myths. Right, we can all argue about whether Britain truly stood alone in 1940 or was backed by the empire and so on and so on. 
But the myths are important because they are ours. And we recognize the stories. They, they, they help us to be familiar with one another and they inspire us to uh, get through difficult periods yeah. and to be better than we might otherwise be. And to me, that is what it is all about. It's not about uh, tolerance, however virtuous tolerance might be. Mm. Um, it's, it's a different question. Mm. <clears throat> you might say that that is maybe one of the reasons why many people uh, seem to be, and I, I would say absolutely rightly, uh, utterly bewildered and, and, and indeed furious by what appears to be the attack on our history. So, so therefore, you could say that, in fact, that that memory, those sets of memories, those personal shared things are being undermined. And therefore, you know, the response is a very emotional one, isn't it? Yes, I think that's completely right. I mean, we can try to work out why those things are being attacked. Uh, but uh, the very things that are bringing us together, I think some of them are, some of them you could argue are growing a little weaker just through kind of organic change. Mm. You might say the Church of England might be one of those. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, you know, arguably the BBC might be one of those as technologies change and you know, we don't <laughs> we don't watch TV in the same way as we did 30 years ago. So when you're at work and you're talking about the uh, the the climax to uh, whatever drama uh, was on TV last night, it doesn't work like that now because people are watching it um, uh, by streaming and so on. So some of these things are a bit organic, but I think some of them are uh, are growing weaker through political choices uh, and political attacks. Um, and uh, and instead of instead of trying to renew and strengthen the things we're talking about, which I think is what politicians really need to be doing right now, uh, and you know it is it is harder to forge shared identities when you're in a multicultural society because you know multicultural by definition means there are differences. So we've got to try to find ways of creating and, and and building up the shared identities despite those divisions and differences um instead of building those things up a lot of political positions are actually attacking them uh, and weakening them uh, whether that is through uh, the education system at schools and at universities um, uh, whether it's about symbols of our history with statues um, uh, uh, and and sometimes it's about uh, you know the institutions themselves mm. so you know a lot of you know why is the national trust behaving as it is why is it why is it um giving in to some of these political pressures coming from the left uh it's i, I don't think it's by conviction i think it's because they're afraid um, but we need institutions like the national trust to keep on telling our national story and to and to keep us in touch with things that have happened before us um, on this point, uh, Nick, you know, with uh, whether it's our history and, and the need to uh, keep healthy uh, national memories and a sense of family, uh, on the general cultural points, which are connected, to, obviously they're all connected at the moment, do you sense that the government and the, the administration, for want of a better word, do understand and take these things seriously? I mean, would you say that 
on an intellectual or an emotional level, they really do? I think increasingly um, ministers do, actually. Um, I think I think some conservatives are pretty worried about getting involved in these arguments because they dis- dislike the idea of a culture war, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and I get that. I mean, a, a culture war is not a very nice thing. Um, but if somebody if somebody is waging war against you, at some point you have to decide to defend yourself and promote your own side. Um, and and I think. It feels to me that ministers are increasingly prepared to do that, and I think, and I think Oliver Dowden, as culture secretary, has been prepared to do that. Um, uh, but I think some conservatives just wish the political dividing line was about the economy. Mm. Um, that's why a lot of them came into politics. They don't really want these kinds of arguments. Some of them find it a bit uncomfortable. Some of them might not even agree. Yeah. Um, uh, but I think ministers increasingly get it. The broader problem they will face, I think, is how do you how do you encourage the wider public sector, and actually increasingly, what do you do about the private sector with lots of businesses, uh, especially the multinationals going mm. woke? Um, uh, what do they do about those things? Because as I say, I don't think this is a this is a sort of widespread thing where lots of senior leaders, middle managers, have suddenly been persuaded of the arguments of critical race theory or anything mm. like that. Yeah. Um, I think those people are uh, often just acting out of fear, uh, so they haven't been empowered, they haven't been uh, informed um, about how to push back. Uh, and how do you confidently hold the line in a way that's respectful? You know, nobody should tolerate racism, but that doesn't mean that we should accept that absolutely everything needs to be racialized in line with some of these theories. Um, everybody should be polite to trans people, um, but that doesn't mean that we should sacrifice the security and privacy of women. Um, so it should be done in a respectful way, but I think those people need to be... Um, uh, informed and empowered to use their common sense and and hold the line when they come under quite serious personal and professional pressure sometimes. Yeah. And then I think there's another question as well, which um, I think is um, a bigger one, which is to what extent are the big legal frameworks that these organisations operate within? Oh, the Equalities Act, presumably. Yeah, the, the Equalities Act, uh, the Human Rights Act, to what extent are these legal frameworks um, driving some of this behaviour? And to what extent are they um, in, you know, in a context um, where political pressures are very different to the ones that were, uh, that existed uh, at the time that those acts were introduced? Uh, to what extent are they part of the problem and to what extent do they need to be reformed or replaced? Yeah, yeah. Um, do you think that uh, Boris Johnson has understands these issues? I mean, I, I remember you know, on the channel last year we we uh, covered, for example, you know the sudden attack on the built environment, you know heritage environment, and there was great frustration that it was so slow. The response was so slow. Um, 
But would you say he understands it? I mean, I think he does. Um, I think he doesn't want to give the impression that he is stoking the culture war, that he's sort of rushing into it, um, that he's using it for political advantage or glorying in it. Mm-hmm. And I think I think a lot of conservatives are slightly worried about um, becoming the Republican Party of America um, and, and the way in which the Republicans uh, quite gratuitously fought the US culture war. Um, uh, they don't want to appear like that, and I think they're right to worry about that. Um, I mean, as I say, I mean, I don't think I don't think conservatives need to cross the road um, uh, to start these arguments. <laughs> There's enough of them already. Um, uh, I think conservatives need to um, uh, to basically hold a line of common sense, mm. of polite common sense, mm. um, and and so. Boris, I think, has um, you know he's intervened in some of these arguments when it comes to um, things like what happened in the Black Lives Matter protests and the attacks on the cenotaph statue of Churchill, um, and he's backed it up with action. You know they're changing the law um, uh, when it comes to protecting statues from attack, and he may not be wading it into wading into it. Um, uh, very personally, but he's definitely empowered some of his ministers uh, to uh, to make sure that um, they are holding the line. So mm-hmm. I mentioned Oliver Dowd and the culture secretary is doing some of this. Um, uh, you know, Rob Jenrick, the communities secretary, has uh, has acted similarly. Uh, Gavin Williamson, the education secretary, has intervened about free speech on campus. Um, so. So you don't just have to judge the PM based on what he says personally, but on what he has allowed or encouraged his ministers to do. Uh, and it, it may not be as robust or as pervasive as um, as some people would like, but they definitely are, um, I think, becoming more robust than they were. I think, um, you know, you mentioned the Republicans there, but I, I was thinking actually more of Macron. Uh, that essentially, whatever we might think, I think he's been so robust on this. And it, it, the French seem not to ever have worried about talking about cultural issues in frontline politics. And there's always been this sort of reluctance, I think, uh, in, in Britain uh, to, uh, but that might, might be changing. Um, I mentioned at the beginning, you were see, at number 10, famously, um, do you do you, uh, you obviously now successfully writing? But do you miss do you miss the kind of life of being in the centre of of the whole thing, like you know, like you were? Uh, I mean, yes and no. Um, I mean, it's it's quite difficult to uh, do jobs like those and give enough time to your private and family life, mm-hmm. uh, and so. My life now is much better balanced. Uh, you got married recently, did you not? Yeah. You? Yes, that's right. That's yeah, right. Recently, uh, thank you. Um, uh, and you know, my life is much more balanced and uh, and happier yeah. now as a result. Um, but I think the thing is, if you're if you're driven by uh, by 
public service and and political debate and some of the ideas we're talking about and i am um then uh then you know you're always if you're writing about it um then you're making a contribution yeah, yeah. and it's a and, and it's a privilege to do that uh mm. it's a privilege to have a national newspaper column and have mm. many people reading uh your arguments um on a weekly basis and the same with uh people who um who are prepared to buy your books mm. um uh but at the same time i think you you do always think well um uh, this is a reasonably indirect way of influencing things and maybe uh um maybe it would be better to be in the thick of it again uh and try to and try to serve more directly would you uh, have another go um on the political route you know uh, standing for parliament or you know w- would you do that yes maybe yeah. um uh, i mean you can't you obviously can't say yes i plan to do that with uh, with great certainty, because mm. um, in democracies, it's not just down to you; is it? it's down to mm. it's down to the public, the um, for the party members to select you as a candidate, and for the voters to choose you. Um, uh, but I certainly haven't ruled out trying to do that no. at some point. Well, look, um, Nick, thank you very much for you know joining us today, um, and right. also, well, I mean, I think obviously we're going to say good luck. If that's not bad luck to say that, is it, in football? But good luck for the people tonight, for the team tonight. Um, but I wonder maybe, um, you know, six months' time, a year's time, you'll come back to talk to us again. Um, yeah, you know, when your book is... Well, your book is out in September by, in paperback, isn't it? The, the paperback edition is. Definitely. OK. Well, maybe next year then. Um, but thank you very much, Nick Timothy, for, uh, for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. But, um, well, that's it for uh, so what you're saying is this week, and um, we shall see you next time. In the meantime, please obviously do remember to subscribe, won't you? Thank you very much. <laughs>